Well, let's go ahead and get started today. Uh, this is our this is lesson seven in our ten uh, part series on meditation. Today is June twenty sixth or seventh, something like that. And uh, I have two, uh, maybe three sections. However, you want to look at it as we think about uh, meditation and uh, all that we've learned in the class. I'd like for this class to be uh, an opportunity for you to add your thoughts to it. Uh, and so the first two sections I have on obstacles in uh, our lives for meditating, uh, it's, it's a small section. And then I have a section of 10 of the items that uh, I'm having as takeaways from the class uh, that are my observations. And then, then we'll have opportunity for you guys to uh, give us your observations. So let's start with uh, common obstacles to the practice of meditation. And uh, we're going to look to the Puritans for the first couple of them. And I think they offer some helpful advice. And this first quote is a little longer, but it comes from Nathaniel Renew, who wrote a, uh, a long work on solitude and meditation. And he makes a, he makes a, a good point here uh, and the summary of it is that meditation can be hard uh, in part because the practice is invisible. Meditation can be hard because the practice is invisible. And here's what he has to say. Meditation is harder than some other duties of godliness, for in other duties the body comes in as an assistant to the soul and lends a hand of help. As in praying, there may be the voice come in, which is of great furtherance, keeping better up the mind's intention and keeping better off deadness and distraction. In reading, the eye is exercised, and the mind is the better, as to attention and heeding, if not to heat and intention. The eye affects the heart, so preaching hath the ear to convey and make the better impression. But in meditation, the soul acts single and unassisted, without a stirring up or exciting by any sense or any help from the body, and so it is the harder as the condition of our nature now makes it. In the state of imperfection, we need the body's help to farther the soul in its workings of some sort. It's a helpful reminder that meditation is a practice that is spent um, unadorned by your other senses largely. Sermons, you get to hear things, you get to see the preacher. Praying, you might at least hear somebody's voice, you can follow along in some way. With reading, your eyes participate in it and it can be helpful. But in meditation, oftentimes it's just you and your thoughts and how easy it is for all our thoughts to, to go astray and keep us distracted. So uh, keeping in mind that it is an invisible practice could be a help in overcoming the obstacle. Then he also has uh, an additional note that I think is, is probably worth mentioning. He said, meditation hath the least opportunities of coming under the observation of others and thereby less provocation and encouragement for doing well by either bad or good, before whom in other cases our light should shine and God by them be glorified. And the point he's making there is that some of the things we do uh, we do in the sight of other people. You know, we're together in church, and if somebody's not here, we can observe that. Uh, and 
we can help provoke them into attending the means of grace so that they can learn. But with meditation, there's nothing to see. There's nothing for other people to see in the act of meditating. And so it can be difficult uh, to walk up and say, hey, I, I see you're not meditating. Right? <laughs> that, that's not something that would work rather well. So the first obstacle I want to mention is that uh, the practice at times is hard because it doesn't have the assistance of parts of the body or other senses, and that it's invisible. So uh, the second obstacle is that uh, he says, um, I'm busy. Actually, I'm very busy, and I can't meditate right now. And so the answer to that is, well, of course you are. Do you know anybody that's not busy in life? Um, So the question that comes about being busy isn't a question of busyness, but it's a question of who are you arguing with when you say you're busy? Are you arguing with God that the condition of your life is such that he hasn't allotted any time for meditation? Um, What types of arguments would God find acceptable for the complete lack of practice of meditation in our lives? You know, it's a question when asked in that light, you can say, well, that's nonsense. Obviously, he's not going to find anything acceptable. But we shouldn't draw from that that just because we're busy doesn't mean our lives don't need to be ordered in some capacity to accommodate what God has clearly directed us to do. So if your life is busy, I get it. Your life is busy, everybody's life's busy, and everyone in history has been busy. It's, we're just busy with different things. So, One of the, th- uh, the third objection I wanted to identify is someone who says, I'm really more of a doer than a thinker. I'm more of a practical person than just a thinking person. Well, sure. Uh, you may have gifts and tendencies that lead you in one direction versus another, and that's fine. Uh, But that doesn't mean you get a free pass on the practice of meditation. Meditation is a directive to everyone. Everyone should be thinking about God's word, should be thinking about sermons, should be thinking about creation, should be thinking about providence, should be thinking about these things in in all their lives. Nobody, nobody, Nobody is so much a doer that they're rendered incapable of thinking. And God's given us the gift of thought so that we can participate in meditation. Does that resonate with you guys? You ever encountered people who might respond that way, that they're more practical people or they're more doers rather than thinkers? Um, So this idea of just meditating doesn't resonate with them. Here's another obstacle. I don't understand what I'm reading. I don't have any idea what's going on. I picked up the Bible and I'm just lost, right? I mean, I'm sure everybody has encountered some passage of the Bible and they read it and thought, beats me, I have no idea what's going on. Um, Yeah, there are parts of the Bible that are just downright difficult. And there are uh, parts of the Bible that take a great deal of work. Uh, And there are parts of the Bible I don't think anybody really quite understands in a full and satisfactory way. And that's okay. Go read another part of the Bible. You get stuck on one, move on to something else. You don't have to. You don't have to parse everything in the Bible in order to be an effective person of meditation. So, how about uh, how about Satan as an obstacle? Does Satan want to see God's people uh, actively participating in meditation and thinking about uh, what God has ordained for them to think about? You have a powerful adversary. He wants to distract you. 
if he can't distract you by doing something evil, he'll just keep you from doing something good, right? So there's more than one way to derail a train. So keep in mind, it's his device of Satan to keep you from meditation. How about, uh, uh, we had the one obstacle is there are difficult things, but then there's another obstacle that's related to it, and that's um, not progressing in our understanding, not putting in the requisite effort of something that needs to be done. Sure, there are parts of the Bible, as we had in our lesson uh, just recently on the difficult by design, that there are parts of the Bible that aren't meant to be understood at face value immediately. They require thought. And so sometimes you just have to commit to putting in the work to understand what's going on. And that can be difficult. And it can be difficult uh, to detect when you're not making any progress. It can be difficult to try to determine whether you should just put in a little more brain sweat and work through a passage until you understand it. It's not always clear which one to do. How about uh, another obstacle is reading familiar uh, passages without treating it with fresh eyes. You find a passage, you're somewhat familiar with it, and you sort of gloss over it. You proceed over it too quickly. You don't stop to meditate and think about what's going on. You've read it before, and then you just don't give it much thought because it seems familiar, and it's what's the point? I've already read this. Well, the point is to think, not just to read. And... One of the ways that uh, uh, one of the authors had um, uh, mentioned as sort of a test as you're going through a passage after you've read it, he said, just write down all the things you remember about the passage you just read. Write down, just jot down the details and then go back and look to see if those details match up with what you just read. And he said, you might be really surprised how many times you misread things, how many times you omit things. Uh, so... If you've read something and you think, well, I don't know if that's, I've read this before, I don't know what the big deal is. Well, maybe write down what you read. And that'll give you a chance to go back and say, I missed this, or I thought about this in the wrong light. It can could, it could jog your attention to think about things in the right light. I think the eighth objection uh, that is probably truer than we'd like for it to be um, I'm just not interested in meditating. I'd rather do something else with my time. I think sometimes it's helpful to just admit what our motivations are rather than trying to describe our motivations in less accurate terms. And so are you interested in meditating and growing in meditation? I don't think we should assume everybody is. And I don't think even people that do uh, should assume that they have a full understanding of its practice or have the desire as cultivated as it ought to be. But like many things in the means of grace, you grow by its practice and seeing its fruit and seeing its value. And so if it's a distant practice for you now or even an undesirable practice, that's okay. Um, start where you're at and move on and cultivate and ask God for the desire. And related to this is the ninth and the last obstacle. Related to this is having a profound love for the world. And that no one really wants to be thought of as in cold terms like that as having a profound love for the world. But it's difficult, I think, to reconcile the practice in many lives uh, of their daily activities contrasted to what they do in meditation. Um, 
So, for instance, what, I'm, what are some of the things? I, I was thinking of 2 Timothy 2, 4. Paul has some specific instruction here, and he says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. It's a, I, 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 use, I like this passage to help us in this area of thinking about it, is, is that it, it reminds us that this world is not all there is and that we have obligations on our lives and we should be thinking about how to fulfill those things. So as a for instance, it may not be something as brash as uh, I, I, I love the world and I hate meditation, so I'm not going to do it. That, that it may not come out like that. It may come out to a position of failing to love the spiritual side of things enough that you position yourself to be distracted in life, right? So you, you position yourself to not be available for meditation. It's not an active endeavor. We're not actively saying, I don't want to meditate, I don't want to do these other things. But we may find ourselves positioned that we're likely to be distracted. So distraction can be a terrible thing. You, you can find life and time just slipping away because we've filled our lives with endless distractions. And each one of those might even be laudable by themselves, right? So every instance of something might be good by itself, but when you see the sum total of it, you think, nah, yesterday, last week, last year, the last decade was a bust. I didn't do anything useful. It's easy for time to slip away, especially when you're distracted. So one of the ways that we demonstrate we have this bias toward a love for the world is the fact that we position ourselves to be distracted and are unable to focus on other things that God has given us to focus on. And I think maybe related to this distraction, related to this idea of being distracted is a subtle desire to be endlessly entertained. We, we just fancy being entertained by whatever it is that we fancy, right? I mean, it's a, it's a thing that we just look at it and say, I like stories. I like to see the latest thing. I'd like to keep up with what's happening. And pretty soon, time has evaporated by and you've given up the opportunity to grow in meditation, to grow in those thoughts that God has provided for us. And, and what did you exchange that for? A life of endless entertainment. So you know all these stories. You see all these happy endings. You see the sad endings. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. You've exchanged it, right? And so what did you exchange it for? Well, that's for a love of what's going on in the world around us today. Uh, what are your other options? And so this is the obstacle that tends to sneak in unawares that we, we're not positively or actively trying to subvert the practice of meditation. Some, in some cases, we might be to say, I'm just not interested. Some people might just say that because they're being honest and they're not. But other people might demonstrate that they have a love for the world by the things that they do, such as being endlessly distracted or endlessly entertained. So having our mind attuned to that can go a long way toward not being distracted or overcoming the obstacles for meditation. Those weren't given in any particular order. Some of them are more closely related than others. But how do those obstacles strike you guys? So the reason I wanted to end in part with these obstacles is knowing that they exist can be the first step to trying to overcome them.
right? Dude, there's everybody's got a speed bump, and everybody's speed bump looks different. So, knowing there's one there, you can generally get over it. Uh, but if you're just barreling down the road, you might stop and say, "Nah, I can't." Obviously, the road's blocked. I can't move forward. So, what do you think of those obstacles, Vicky? I like how you said positioning yourself. Yeah, it's, it's a subtle way of showing what's important in your life. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make time for these things. So, yeah, that's, that's good. What other thoughts you guys have about obstacles? Hey, Dylan. It is. It's it's important, and, and I want to I want to make sure there's have a dis, a distinction. I I uh, I was advised by some people to include a section on a warning about smartphones, and I deliberately didn't say anything about phones in here because the the temptation is to believe that the current form of distraction is the problem, when lots of people without smartphones leave futile lives. The ability to be distracted is not, it may be empowered in a particular vein with a piece of technology, but there are plenty of poor people who have no technology that are, that are not living their lives and feeding their minds on the things of God. Uh, that's right. In Crouch's book, he, he makes a distinction. He talks about devices, but he's not talking about screens. They, they are one example of that. Your furnace is a device. And he makes this distinction between instruments tools and devices, and I'm reminded of the passage that God has man, God has made man upright, but he has sought out many devices. That's right. And that, that verse was written before the iPhone existed. It, it, was, it was written a long time ago, yeah. That's right. 
All right, so let's, uh, let's zip through uh, my top 10 takeaways. Not in order. I was going to do it in order. I think the last one might be in order, but the others are not. Um, I hope you find this. I hope you find this useful. Uh, this is our last class today. The Puritans thought a great deal about meditation. Joseph Hall, 1574 to 1656. Uh, wrote The Art of Divine Meditation. Uh, it, it seems to have been fairly influential across the broad spectrum of people, uh, including the Port Quarles and, and others. Uh, a, lot of people, a lot of people refer to Hall, and this is, a, this is a, a, one of his works. Uh, it's, he wrote a lot about this. He wrote a lot about things, uh, but The Art of Divine Meditation, I think, is one of the go-tos uh, for people. And one of the things that I hope you'll see in, in these few slides here, and I have to admit, I, I thought I had a pretty good idea of what the Puritans wrote about. I, I've read a lot of different things over the years, but I was stunned by how much they wrote about meditation that was completely off my radar. I did not, I don't know why I didn't see it, but I did not see this. There's a lot of material in meditation. I'm not necessarily recommending you go read it it's I mean once you it's not that hard of a subject to, I, to master so you don't need a lot of things but uh, John Flavel uh, this is a practical example of this idea of meditating on Providence I mentioned it in uh, the end of the section last week this is part of his faithful and succinct narrative of some late and wonderful sea deliverances so Flavel was this was an implementation while not written as a directive of meditation, it's written as a example of meditating on providence. So you can put this in the umbrella of people writing on meditation uh, because that's what he was doing, even though it was, it was a, a chronicle of sea deliverances. So this idea of meditating on active things, he's got a whole, whole work and some sermons uh, on this. Nathaniel Renau, who we just we read that opening quote, Solitude Improved by Divine Meditation, is another work that uh, was influential in Puritan. And you can see this table of contents. You see the first one here. This table of contents goes on for four pages. It's not that long of a book, but uh, you, you, can, you can see it's, it, 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 there's a lot of information contained in here. Uh, Edmund Calame wrote another influential work called The Art of Divine Meditation. Uh, I don't think they put a lot of thought into their titles. There's more than one book called The Art of Divine Meditation written in a similar era, 1600 to 1666 for him. So this is a book that is an, uh, expanded upon the passage we looked at with Isaac walking in the fields, that uh, uh, hapox of uh, meditation, you know, word that's used there. So anyway, uh, Edmund Calame thought about it. And then there are a couple of books of more recent vintage. Uh, the Christian Meditation by Edmund Clowney, not to be confused with Calame, but Edmund Clowney. Uh, he died just a couple years ago, I think. Uh, but this was written in the 70s. And uh, it's, an, it's an interesting book. Uh, it's a little dated. Uh, should probably have go through a, uh, an update, but it was an important work, especially uh, he was trying to combat in part the idea of transcendental meditation, which we looked at was, was some time. And so uh, his book starts with that premise, but he has some other interesting ways of thinking about meditation. And then this book by David Saxton's God's Battle Plan for the Mind is, is really an, a survey or an overview of 
of a lot of Puritan literature. This is, this is the book that helped me see all the different works that were available that I, I was unaware of. So this is, God's Battle Plan is really a summary of, of the Christian thought. And I don't know um, what its relationship is. There's uh, an article or a paper written by uh, Joel uh, Beakey, and then there's a section in that big monster volume of his on Puritan theology, there's a whole section that has a lot of similar overlapping themes on meditation. Um, but there's some relationship between those things. Uh, but God's Battle Plan for the Mind uh, was very helpful for this class, and there's much more in that book than what we decided to cover in here. So um, it, it's, it's a good book, but you'll, you'll find um, a lot of information in there. So they'd be heartily recommended. The Puritans could meditate on just about anything. This is number nine. So I, I showed you the title page for uh, Joseph Hall's The Art of Divine Meditation, but the Puritans didn't stop there. We saw that example of Flavel when he, he writes the Seed Deliverances book. This is a book, The Occasional Meditations. This was printed uh, posthumously by his son, Joseph. Uh, and he wrote page after page after page of what they called occasional meditations. It's that, it's that separation of the regular deliberate meditations and the occasional ones we looked at, the two types. But he wrote on everything, meditations to show people how to meditate. He, medita- he has examples of everything. I've got a few to go through. They're classic. We, we, we don't say things like this anymore. So I'm going to read this quote. I hope you like it. Uh, his meditation, what is that, 137, on the sight of a dwarf. Can you think of anything that is likely to get mocked today? But hear what he has to say. Amongst all the bounteous gifts of God, what is it that he hath equally bestowed upon all, except it be our very being while we are? He hath not given to all men the same statue of body, nor the same strength of wit, nor the same capacity of memory, nor the same beauty of parts, nor the same measure of wealth and honor. Thus he has also done in matter of grace. There are spiritual dwarfs, there are giants, there are perfect men, children, babies, embryos. This inequality does so much more praise the mercy and wisdom of the giver and exercise the charity and thankfulness of the receiver. The essence of our humanity does not consist in stature. He that is of little of growth is as much man as he that is taller. Even so also spiritually, the quantity of grace does not make the Christian, but the truth of it. I shall be glad and ambitious to add cubits to my height. But with all, it shall comfort me to know that I cannot be so low of stature as not to reach unto heaven. That's actually really well done. <laughs> I thought this was excellent. His book is just filled with this stuff. On the discharging of a piece, of a gun. He's got a whole meditation on being around someone firing a gun. On the sight and noise of a peacock. On the arraignment of a felon. On the sight of flies. <laughs> There's a whole meditation on it. On the sight of a left-handed man. On the sight of a man yawning. <laughs> yeah. On the sight of a hedgehog. <laughs> Whoever meditated on the sight of a hedgehog. Well, the Puritans did. They wrote it up. Is he a one-on-one? 
<laughs> he might have one in armadillos. I don't know. He might have one. I didn't read all of them. Um, and so what's the point besides just making fun of all this, right? Um, and so I was reading an article on, uh, well, anyway, it was, so this gets to this idea of these occasional meditations. And I think, I think this is an area that's not as clear in people's minds. What do you mean by meditating? I gave an example of the revelation that I had when thinking about Psalm 119 and that dude from the radio and how it all came together. But here's this analogy. And it takes imagination, which is a work of the mind. It takes imagination to occasionally meditate on the mundane, right? The discharging of a piece of a left-handed man or whatever. But think of it in this light. Travelers to new destinations look at sights. They look at the things. They, they take in, what are they doing? They're taking in the sights. Those sights are everyday objects to the people that live there. Right? But they're not to you. So you're seeing it. You're seeing the same thing as they see it, but you're seeing it with what? Different eyes. And that's the point he's making. Monday, meditating on everyday objects cultivate insight into appreciating God's wisdom in creation and providence. And so Hall wasn't trying to be sensational in writing a, 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 something about flies and left-handed men and dwarfs, right? That's not the point. The point is he would stop and take in the sights as a stranger and as a pilgrim and say, God has wisdom in this somehow. I wonder what that wisdom might be. And he draws from it this truth that no man is so small that he cannot reach up to God. And so when you're, when you're the idea of these occasional meditations is to be able to take in the world around you with fresh eyes and be able to put it together. And I like that analogy of the traveler who does these things. It kind of makes me think of a microscope. Like you, you uh, like this sippy cup right here. Just, you know, you're, I, I blow by that. We got things we're doing, but if you were to get, if you were to put that in a microscope, where you see, you find there's, there's probably bacteria on there. There's the molecules of the plastic. There's all kinds of things going on there. And, until you decide to zoom in on it, you're, you're just, you're, you're going to reach back unless you decide, well, I could marvel and write a chapter on it. On the site of a city government. Yeah. But who knows what you might learn by zooming in on that. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, I think sometimes we tend to feel like our meditation should be Yeah, that's why it's a sin to be bored. <laughs> right? There's plenty to wonder about. Richard Sibbs, another Puritan, he wrote 338 items, different things for his people in his church to meditate on. And here we are, uh, at we're 136 pages in, and there's 338 right there. Uh, there the, the amount of time and effort the Puritans devoted to meditating on mundane or everyday things really struck me as, as odd. It, it, it shows their pastoral intent, that they were there trying to help their people learn how to think about the world and, and to interact with it.
So, uh, number eight, believers in the age of Puritans had trouble finding the time and energy to meditate just as we do. I didn't find a single author that didn't lament that people just wouldn't take the time to do it. Um, their lives were busy. Your lives are busy. Either in kind or degree, there's some sort of activity. Everybody was occupied in the 1600s with something. Um, Whatever keeps us busy today is probably not going to be the exact same way people in the year 2500, if the Lord tarries, will find themselves being busy. But they'll look back and someone will say, you know, I I, I found this archived MP3. And it turns out in 2023, they were talking about how busy they were and how difficult it was to meditate. And just like we do today, you know, so nothing's new. Nothing's changed. Busyness is not the problem. Transcendental meditation is not a significant force in our society today, but counterfeits of biblical meditation are everywhere and largely unlabeled. Eastern spirituality is empty and overrated. Don't be intimidated by it. Don't be swayed by it. Even if someone from France practices it with the weird brain waves that they showed in that, that article we looked at. So don't be persuaded that this empty spirituality is a valid form of uh, alternative to biblical meditation. Don't be seduced by secret rites and empty promises. It's just not there. Number six, one of the things I think is vastly underappreciated with the power of meditation, and that is that it's designed to be a powerful tool to disabuse your mind and your heart of the various forms of unbelief. Everybody here struggles with unbelief in some capacity, right? Everybody's got something. There are doctrines, there are truths that we just can't wrap our minds around. Meditation is a powerful tool to disabuse your minds of things that aren't right. Use it. Use it. Uh, It's okay if your form of meditation looks different from other people's. Again, we'll go to Joseph Hall. Thus I have endeavored, according to my slender faculty, to prescribe a method of meditation, not upon so strict terms of necessity, that whosoever goeth not my way erreth. Divers paths lead oftentimes to the same end, and every man aboundeth in his own sense. If experience and custom hath made another form familiar to any man, I forbid it not. As that learned father said of his translation, let him use his own, not contemn mine. If any man be to choose and begin, let him practice mine till he meet with a better master. If another course may be better, I am sure this is good. Neither is it to be suffered that, like as fantastical men, while they doubt what fashion suit they should wear, put on nothing. These guys just can't quite figure out what the fashion of the day is, and they spend their time thinking about it, and they end up not wearing anything. Hall is saying, doesn't matter to me. If you don't have a good idea, use mine. Use it until you come across a better path. I'll say the same thing for this class. If you go through this class, you think that's not quite for me, that's fine. Find your own way to meditate. Uh, Discover the best practice. If this is of some use, improve upon it. Teach somebody else, but uh, do it. That's That's the main form. Put some clothes on. That's the title of the site. Put some clothes on. Don't be like those fashionable men who can't. All right, number four, meditating on some aspects of creation and providence can be quite hard and may take years to gain understanding. Don't let that discourage you. It's not as 
quick in terms of time as meditating on a sermon, meditating on the word. Meditating on providence could take a long time to figure out. It's not always clear to us. Uh, number three, in all likelihood, we probably make the practice of meditation way more difficult than what was intended. So discuss your meditations with one another. Uh, what you do may be insightful to somebody else. That's just the point of what Malachi is saying. Talk to one another about what you're thinking about. Uh, number two, the importance of our thoughts is greater than I realized. Again, from Hall. Wherein give me leave to complain with just sorrow and shame that if there be any Christian duty whose omission is notoriously shameful and prejudicial to the souls of professors, it is this of meditation. This is the very end God hath given us our souls for. We misspend them if we use them not thus. How lamentable it is that we so employ them as if our faculty of discourse served for nothing but our earthly provision. As if our reasonableness in Christian minds were appointed for the slaves and drudges of this body, only to be the eaters and cooks of our appetite. That's all you are at the end of the day. If you're not somebody who's going to give yourself to meditation, it's that reasonable Christian service, reasonable in the sense of being of the mind, something that can be reasoned, something that can be thought through and understood. Your life consists more than its body. Employ the mind. And uh, number one, meditation is delightful. We've covered a lot of ground. It was uh, Thomas Watson, I think, who made this specific point. You are not a beast. Beasts don't meditate. You are not a beast. You have the capacity to wonder, to comprehend, and to experience a genuine understanding of the Trinity, the nature of God. It originates with all things in grace. God gives you this ability to understand it. How could meditation be anything different? All right, my final, final thought for the class. Don't be overwhelmed by any of this. Thomas Brooks reminds us, for a close, remember this, that your life is short. Your duty is many. Your assistance great. And your reward is sure. Therefore, faint not. Hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing. And heaven shall make amends for all. Sell that in our class on precious remedies, but there you go. All right, those are my closing thoughts on a practice of meditation. We still have some time. Uh, what are your takeaways? Uh, what has been helpful? What needs more clarification? What are you guys thinking about? Or maybe I should say, what are you thinking about? <laughs> What are your takeaways from the class? Just do it. Don't overthink it. <laughs> An interesting solution to the problem of thinking, isn't it? Don't overthink the thinking. Yeah. That's good. What else? What other takeaways do you have? Was it helpful? Okay. God's battle plan for the mind. View of, of, of the Puritan's way of, of the meditating and uh, seeing how to uh, use that for uh, uh, in between the sacraments 
of, of communion that uh, I'm examining myself and, and meditating on also on the Lord uh, in between the sacraments, in the sacrament of baptism or of communion, so that you know it's a food for the journey. Um, but that meditation will help me to make it along to the next next sacrament. different perspective of meditation and the, and the small things that I may gloss over and overlook and take for granted. Yeah. I'm thinking of uh, how easy it is to be discouraged, like we want to see, I do this for a hundred days and, right. oh God, and, right. yeah. and then to be um, sidetracked, like, oh, I, I can't because I missed a couple of days. So the idea of, of persevering yeah, I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't spend much time on that point, uh, but in this sense of busyness that we have, uh, it, it it would be wrong to dismiss the idea that there there's a seasonality to different things in life. Sometimes you're just busy with good things and you can't stop it. Life varies. The problem is generally not that I got busy and I couldn't do something. It's that when you stopped being as intensely busy, you didn't start doing something. You didn't fill, you didn't go back and resume the practice. It's like Bible reading on a regular basis. We, many people get discouraged. Oh, I, I missed three days this week, so what's the point of continuing? Pick up where you're at, uh, move forward. So yeah, it's, it, it's easy to get discouraged because we think we have to tally it all up, but you know, our, our lives are, wide and varied and different things happen at different intervals and intensity yeah what other concluding thoughts you guys have the floor is yours Well, I think one of the uh, one of the ways we help, especially young people, in the practice of meditation is to. Uh, so, for instance, in the high school class I was teaching, we, we looked at that figure of speech called the paranomasia, when Jesus uses the word necros to said, "Let the dead bury the dead." You know, he's, he just he did not say that as clearly as it could have been said by design, and and teaching kids that understanding the Bible takes brain sweat. And they're going to have to learn how to think about things. And not explaining everything to them, but explaining enough to them to put them in a spot where they can think about it. And then following up to find out, did you figure this out? Uh, When Solomon wrote Proverbs, he says, the point is that you have to ponder this. I'm going to use the fewest number of words as artfully as I can to describe something complex and there's no easy way around it. The only way you understand it is by thinking about it. So helping kids understand there are multiple meanings of words and why we have to see one thing in light of another, it's just one of those things that that takes time. Now for the youngest of children, that's absurd, (laughs) right? That's why we have catechisms. Uh, you know, who made you? God. Top of the class, right? 
Uh, that's, that's the point with the smallest of children. But as children grow and progress, they need, to, they need to become aware and to internally take on the burden of learning to think through things that are not patently obvious. So that would be my observation. What other thoughts do you guys have about the class or the topic or questions? Or? It's good for me to understand that the way that I understand who God is is through this word. And it takes digging to get there. God communicates to us many, many, many different ways. And he spells out things in his word. He spells them out in sermons. He spells it out in creation. He spells it out in acts of providence. He's trying to get our attention and talk to us. And hearing and understanding is the way we respond back. Yeah. yeah I think it, it, it was good because uh, even my, my pastor last Thursday was talking about um, in the short catechism. And uh, I, um, I haven't been against to be catechizing myself and going to the catechisms because... You, know, you uh, those cover you know all the doctrines. Um, it's really uh, edifying. You know, to be going through that. That's something that I, you know, I, I struggle with. Um, you know, is relearning the Peter catechism. That's a uh, it's good for the soul. It is. It's where you're at today, and move on. I don't. You know, I memorized large parts of the cat. Can't recite it anymore. You know, it's gone. But. It's still profitable to read and think about, so, yeah. Any other thoughts before we bring it to a close?